The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. There Joyce was, miraculously in the library, preternaturally still in a wooden chair. His long legs were crossed and his large hands drooped from arms draped on the chair. Sylvia wondered if he'd ever played piano with those fingers, two of which had rings on them on both hands. His head was almost perfectly egg-shaped, and he was looking out the window at a leafy tree with two twittering goldfinches as if they contained the meaning of life. Ignoring her nervous heartbeat, she stood just to the side of the window, cleared her throat, and said, I understand you're the great James Joyce? Her words drew his interest, and she saw that the eyes behind his brass wire glasses were a glorious blue, except that in the left iris was obscured by milky film. Yet he didn't squint or struggle to see her, and in fact, he unnerved her by further devoting the same attention to her as he had to the birds and tree outside. I don't know about great, he replied, but James Joyce is correct enough. And you are? Sylvia Beach, she said. I have an English language bookstore and lending library in the sixth, Shakespeare and Company. A burst of laughter erupted in the other room, startling her. She held out her hand to shake his, and when he accepted, rising for a moment from the chair, she was surprised to find that his seemingly strong, beringed hand gave such a weak shake limp at the wrist. It's a pleasure to meet you, Miss Beach. Your reputation precedes you, you know. He gestured for her to sit in the chair that was twin to his a foot or so away. Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Kerry Mayer is the author of several works of fiction, including The Kennedy Debutante and The Girl in the White Gloves. Kerry's latest book, The Paris Bookseller, is the story of Sylvia Beach and the iconic Paris bookstore Shakespeare and Company, which became a meeting place for the American lost generation of the 1920s. Kerry, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Names like James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein, they're all names well known to readers. But who was Sylvia Beach? Sylvia Beach was an American woman who had spent a teenage year in Paris when her father was the uh, pastor at the American church in Paris. And she really fell in love with Paris as a teenager. This is sort of my book starts with a memory of this. So there's no spoilers. Um, And she grew up and she was quite a crusader. She campaigned for women's suffrage in the United States. She volunteered with Red Cross throughout World War I. And she found herself in Paris toward the end of the First World War in 1917. And she stumbled into a French language bookstore and lending library called La Maison des Amis de Vivre, run by a French woman named Adrienne Monnier. And sort of her life kind of took shape at that moment. She fell in love with Adrienne and with the store and with the life that Adrienne had created in the store. All of Bohemian uh, intellectual Paris came to her store for readings, for talk, for books. And she discovered that the French intellectual community 
was really hungry for books in English. It was really hard to get books written by Americans and, and British writers in, in the native English. And there was a real hunger for that among the French uh, writers that she met at Adrienne's store. And so she saw an opening. She's, she saw an ability for her to open her own bookstore that could be a complement to Adrienne's and to sort of be a bridge between um, French and American writers. And, and she had no idea when she opened her store in 1919 that not only would she do that, she did provide that for the French intellectual community, but she also ultimately provided the home away from home for those lost generation writers. This group of artists and writers, the American lost generation, by virtue of their escape to Europe and particularly to Paris, what were they escaping from? Well, you know, there's there's a fair amount of talk about this in the early part of my novel. And the America of the post-war years, you know, 1919, 1920, um, 21, was a period of extreme conservatism. You know, we had just outlawed alcohol. <laughs> um, we had begun prohibition, the great experiment, right? Um, it was also a time defined by real anti-immigrant sentiment um, and anything that kind of smacked of difference was really criticized and shunned in America at this time. And so um, James Joyce's novel, which he was, was being serialized in these years in an avant-garde literary journal called The Little Review, was kind of caught in the crossfires of this conservatism. Not only was it written by an Irish writer who lived on the continent of Europe, it was being published by two women who had once been followers of Emma Goldman, who, and, and for listeners who might not know who Emma Goldman is, I certainly didn't know, really know, wasn't familiar with her until I started researching this book. She was um, a famous anarchist. Um, and she was very politically active in New York in um, the first part of the 20th century. And she was at one point labeled the most dangerous woman in America. <laughs> um, so so that, that whole network of things were what the American writers were leaving America behind. And when they went to Paris, they found themselves in a place that was a far more artistically accepting place. It was apparent to me that you are something of a Francophile, but just how much of a Francophile are you? You know, I would not call myself a Francophile. So I'm flattered that the book um, uh, conveyed that. And, and you know, it's funny because actually my last book was about Grace Kelly, who lived most of her, you know, adult life in Monaco, which is in some ways very connected to France. Um, I, 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 of course, absolutely love all things Paris and love um, what, you know, everything that I know about um, France and, and Franco-American relations, I've always been very interested in that. The core of what drew me to this story was really the, the lost generation piece. Like I've always been entranced by this, uh, this, this generation of American writers who went to Paris, this, you know, one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think we can all agree, um, and, and really transformed literature. In a work of biographical fiction, which this is, what are the challenges in writing historical fiction where we already know the outcome? How do you maintain narrative tension throughout the book? It is a challenge. And I've had to do, this is my third book, you know, doing that. Um, with Sylvia's story, I actually felt more confident that more readers would not know how her story ended. <laughs> um, but there is, it is, a, it's a challenge, right? Like, so 
and if so if you sort of fess up in your mind to the fact that most readers are either going to know the story or google the story halfway through and figure out how it ends really you have to make the journey worth their while right it so i i hope that um you know the journey that we take with sylvia to opening shakespeare and company and what it really felt like to do that what it really well what was it really like for her the day that ernest hemingway young ernest hemingway who was nobody at, in 1921 no he was just a journalist with the toronto star what what was that like you know and and so i just found myself asking those questions over and over and over again what was what would this have been really like um and and the answers i figured that if the answers were exciting to me they could be exciting to readers too Obviously, a lot of research has gone into this book, but I wondered, when do you stop researching and start writing? Really, the answer to this question for me lies in the research. Um, so, I, you know, when I approached this subject, I had all, years ago, I had already read Sylvia Beach's own memoir. I had read it as an undergrad um, in college who was, like I said, obsessed with the 1920s and the lost generation. But of course, when I when I got the green light to write this book, I've, I reread her memoir uh, cover to cover very carefully with a pencil in hand. Um, and I also read, you know, numerous other fiction and nonfiction from, from and about this time period. And I think it's really, it's the research in historical fiction that really show you where those points of narrative tension are going to be. Because as a reader, of course, I knew how the story was going to end, but I could feel where my heart would get going faster um, in the, in the course of, learning what happened, like how it actually unfolded. And the narrative arc of her, not just opening Shakespeare and Company, but publishing James Joyce's novel Ulysses, I found to be just fraught with tension from the get-go. You know, here are two friends who decide to go into business together. We already have conflict at the ready, right? And, and we know that James Joyce is a very different kind of person from Sylvia Beach. And so those are those are very human tensions that I think, you know, even though we're talking about a great literary genius, he's also altogether very human. This period of creative endeavor is something of a golden age for writing and publishing. How do you temper the glow that radiates from this time in history? And is there a danger of over-romanticizing the era and the players? Oh, uh, this is, so for this book more than I, any of my others, that is the hardest question to answer because, because I'm writing about writers who wrote their whole lives and have left behind enormous bodies of very important work. And because they were so important, many biographers and academics and others have written about them. I literally could have only researched this book for a decade and not written a word of my own. <laughs> um, and so I really, I had to be pretty strict with myself about how much research I was going to do. And one of my first sort of rules for myself was, well, this is really from Sylvia's point of view. I'm writing in third person, but it's definitely from Sylvia's point of view. And although I want the other characters to leap off the page and be real and three-dimensional, they're still being seen from her point of view. So really reading as much as I could from her voice and perspective became very important to me. Um, the other thing that became really important to me was really learning the the 
machinations of the legal system that Ulysses had to grind through in, in the 20s and then later again um, in the 30s. So there was a lot of learning I really needed to do. But from a more sort of like woo-woo writer perspective, which I do, it's writing is a, a kind of a woo-woo thing to do. There is a point with all my books and all my research where the characters just start putting themselves into scenes. And when I find that my note-taking, my research note-taking is veering into scene-making, that's sort of when I know I'm ready to set the research aside and start writing the book. You capture these personalities so vividly, and that makes it easy to see these great names as real people. But how do you go about creating characters that are believable while navigating the line between character and caricature? Um, well, I hope I never do that. <laughs> I mean, I hope I always stay in character and, you know, and, and all the writers I know who, who deal with biographical fiction or, or deal with real people are so cognizant of, of wanting to do right by these people. You know, we have such enormous respect for these, the people that they really were, <laughs> um, that, you know, so we do our homework. I think that's the number one thing, right? We do enough research so that we feel when they kind of emerge from the literature as characters who are talking to us, who are putting themselves in scenes in our imaginations, we just, there's a level on which we have to trust that that is authentic, that that is, that is real. There's also like the truth that like, there's a first draft that no one ever gets to see <laughs> where Sylvia was not so three-dimensional and James Joyce was maybe not so such a strong character, but like, you know, through the process of revision and giving my work to very, very trusted um, other writers and readers who give me the hard feedback, I can go back into those places where, you know, maybe maybe the character development was a little bit weak or the, the, the presentation needed a little bit more something. Um, so really research and revision are, I think, and, and respect are, are the key components of that. Sylvia Beach lived in a rarefied world within the sphere of some of the greatest writers of our time. Joyce, Ezra Pound, Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein. And as a final question to you, I wondered how you connect the writing and the author with the character you create. How does their own literary legacy influence your casting them as a character? It's funny, I actually felt like really, like the character who I think is most romanticized or maybe even anti-romanticized is Ernest Hemingway, right? Because he's such a larger than life. And, you know, while I was writing, the Ken Burns documentary about Ernest Hemingway came out and, and I, I sort of started watching part of that, but everyone was like pinging me about that. They were like, are you watching this documentary? Um, so, but what I loved about writing Ernest Hemingway in my book is that it was from Sylvia's perspective. And Sylvia was never romantically involved with him. She was romantically involved with Adrienne. So they had a very different kind of relationship than, um, than many of the other characters who have come forward in historical fiction over the years and made Hemingway a character, like many of which I've absolutely loved. I mean, like The Paris Wife by Paula McLean is one of my all-time favorites. It was like, I would call it a mentor text for me when I started writing historical fiction. Um, so part of the answer to the question is, is asking myself, well, what do I have to say about any of these people that's new and different? And I think that keeps it on the right track. You know, what really came to my mind as you were asking that question is, is 
that because I'm a writer myself and I have so many very good writer friends who I depend on for, and I, we mutually depend on each other for advice and, and, and manuscript critiques and all the rest of this. I have this very deep understanding that writers are just people. <laughs> James Joyce was a person and uh, Sylvia Beach was a person. Adrienne was a person. They were all people. They led very human lives, even though they were being hailed as geniuses and um, visionaries and, and all, all the things. When you know, Monday morning at 10 a.m. rolled around and Sylvia Beach opened the doors of Shakespeare and Company. James Joyce was just a customer <laughs> um, and a friend um, and someone who was hungover, probably. <laughs> um, when you do the research and you you are reminded of those truths, right, I think it becomes a little bit easier to write about people like this. And I, you know, I, I will also say this. Um, I'm glad this is my third historical novel. Um, my, my first historical novel was about the Kennedy family. So I already had to kind of break through this barrier in my mind. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, am I really going to put words in the mouth of a young John F. Kennedy? <laughs> it's like, well, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> this is something that historical writers talk about amongst ourselves a lot. And, you know, Hilary Mantel, who wrote The Wolf Hall, um, books, uh, did this amazing series of lectures for the BBC um, that I read. And, you know, one of the things that she says, historical fiction, I'm really, I'm some, I'm paraphrasing here. Historical fiction is not a photographic representation. It is more like a painting with the brushstrokes left in. You know, it's really an interpretation. And I've really had to embrace that idea um, on a deep level, you know, my Paris bookseller, my James Joyce, my Sylvia Beach, my Ernest Hemingway are not the same as what another writer would write. And that's okay. Um, they are my interpretations. And then readers who read then interpret things a step further, the sort of concentric circles of interpretation. It's a really intriguing book, Kerry. And I want to thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time talking to you. I've been talking to Kerry Mayer about her latest book, The Paris Bookseller. It's published by Hachette and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.